We've arrived now at the question of the concrete line of thinking when it comes to common grace. Here is that question, page 68 of Common Grace in the Gospel. This is going to frame everything we do for the rest of this discussion of the positive line of concrete thinking earlier and later grace. Here it is. What do entities which will one day be wholly different from one another have in common before that final stage of separation is reached? That is the question Van Til is asking. Now let me frame this on the board just diagrammatically very briefly. In the eternal decree, there is an absolute and immutable personal differentiation between the elect and the reprobate. This eternal decree will be realized perfectly in the consummation at the end of the age. This will be realized in its infallible perfection. Van Til's question is, if there is an absolute and immutable personal differentiation between the elect and the reprobate, which will be brought to its full fruition, its consummation at the end of the age, it will be actualized perfectly at the end of the age. What commonality exists between the elect and the reprobate in covenant history? Now, in order to pursue this positive line of concrete thinking, and to answer this question, Van Til begins with Adam's creation as the image of God enveloped in covenantal revelation. See the previous module for more discussion of that matter. Here is Van Til's uh, distillation. He says that there is in the decree what he calls wholly different classes of individuals. There is in the decree, to use my language, an absolute and immutable personal differentiation between the elect and the reprobate. The number of each is infallibly fixed. Van Til says, in that sense, the elect and the reprobate in the decree are wholly different. We'll just use Van Til's term here. Wholly different. What he means by that is they have been exhaustively differentiated in the decree. The elect are the unconditionally loved people of God. The reprobate are passed over and God ordains in his justice to condemn them to hell. The two in the decree, let me put it this way, in the decree have been absolutely differentiated. So in eternity past, there's differentiation. And in the consummation, what was ordained will be brought to pass infallibly in the ultimate, catastrophic, climactic discrimination between the elect and the reprobate. In the final state of history, what God has immutably decreed will reach its historical realization. Common grace deals with what those who were categorically differentiated in the eternal decree 
and with those who will be categorically differentiated in the consummation. What do they have in common in the interim of history from its alpha point, Adam's creation as the image of God, to its omega point, the consummation of all things? In order to be concrete, Van Til appropriates the deeper Protestant conception set forth by his favorite professor at Princeton, Gerhardus Voss. He does so on pages 69 and 70. Van Til begins, quote-unquote, concretely with Adam and Eve as created by God before the fall into sin. And listen to what he says. This will sound so familiar. But now we're bringing it into the discussion of common grace. He says, quote, Adam and Eve had the requirements of God's law written on their hearts. We need not concern ourselves here with the distinction between the works of the law and the law. We are not speaking now of man's ethical reaction to God. We are speaking only of God's revelational relationship to man. And on that point, all should be equally anxious to maintain that God originally spoke plainly to man, both in the book of nature and in the book of conscience. Wherever man would turn, he saw the living God and his requirements. Whether he reasoned about nature or whether he looked within, whether it was the starry heavens above or the moral law within, both were equally insistent and plain that God, the true God, stood before him. Common grace in the gospel, 69. We've seen this before. Adam, as a federal head, exists in an environment of revelation. It's external, it's internal. External, book of nature, starry host, internal, conscience, what is written upon his heart, that implanted knowledge. The knowledge of God was implanted in Adam in the book of conscience and enveloped Adam in the book of nature so that the natural religious fellowship Voss spoke of as integral to the image of God, Van Til here is affirming. This is a statement of the deeper Protestant conception. Human nature as it came from the hand of God was not sinful from the beginning and in need of the Christ event, Bart, wasn't inherently under proportion and in need of ontologically reproportioning grace, Aquinas. It was inclined toward God in worship and enveloped in an environment of revelation. That's a brief way of summarizing what we spoke of in the previous module as the natural knowledge of God that elicited natural religious fellowship with God. But Van Til immediately adds what his professor Voss taught him, page 68, uh, pardon me, page 69. Quote, it should also be recognized that man was from the outset confronted with positive as well as natural revelation. Dr. Voss speaks of this as pre-redemptive special revelation. Natural revelation must not be separated 
from this supernatural revelation. To separate the two is to deal with two abstractions instead of with one concrete situation. That is to say, natural revelation, whether objective or subjective, is in itself a limiting conception. It has never existed by itself as far as man is concerned. It cannot fairly be considered, therefore, as a fixed quantity. It cannot be dealt with in the same way at every stage of man's moral life. Man was originally placed before God as a covenant personality. Now, here's what we need to appreciate about this. Van Til says that to think of natural and special revelation as separated from one another is to think abstractly. He says to think of natural and special revelation at every point supplementing one another, at every point being given to Adam distinctly, inseparably, and simultaneously, is a concrete way of thinking. And so the the revelation of God in nature, external and internal, is given to Adam as a federal head in the covenant of works. Natural revelation without special revelation is blind. Special revelation without natural revelation is empty. They are two forms of one concrete revelation that God gives to Adam. This is a concrete way of thinking. Now, Adam is not a federal head by virtue of creation simpliciter, but by an act of special providence. By that act of special providence, by terms given in supernatural revelation, Adam would represent his natural posterity as a federal head. That is the beginning of the concrete line of thinking. The one federal head will represent the many who descend from him by ordinary generation. As he is given both natural and special revelation in fellowship with God. This is concrete and not abstract. Expanding on this, page 71, Van Til says this, the whole future, as far as Adam's knowledge was concerned, was conditioned by his obedience. And that conditioning by his obedience is what we spoke of earlier as the authenticity of secondary causes, proximate causes. Van Til goes on to say, but if this act of obedience or disobedience was to have any significance, it had to be obedience or disobedience with respect to God whom he knew. His moral act could not be action in a void. He knew something of God and of God's attitude toward him without any unconditional revelation about God's final purpose. Now, what is he saying? Well, let me put it simply. As far as Adam was concerned, as a creature in covenant history, his future was conditional. His future was conditional. This means that his future and the future of those whom he represented hinged on his perfect obedience and conformity to God's revealed will in the covenant of works. While God had ordained for sure the fall of Adam, 
as the ultimate cause. That foreordination does not undermine or render meaningless or evacuate a bona fide, well-meant offer of life for perfect and personal obedience under the covenant of works. The authentic feature of covenant history, a well-meant offer of an advanced estate for perfect obedience, is not denied in light of an all-determining, comprehensive, and immutable decree. In the concrete line of thinking, then, the covenant historical has a distinct and ineradicable integrity that cannot be eviscerated or qualified away in light of an immutable eternal decree. That is Van Til's initial point about this positive line of concrete thinking. The next development in this line of argument appears on page 72. He says this, it goes to prove further that man's good ethical reaction must be taken as an aspect of the revelatory character of everything created. He says, to be sure this good reaction was not yet consummated, and it wasn't the consummated good that shall be attained in the case of those that will be in glory. Yet it was a good ethical reaction. Uh, Just so we don't lose track, he's speaking of Adam in the garden prior to the fall as the image of God in covenant relation to God. He says it was good, not so much in a lower sense as in an earlier sense. Now, this is going to be key because this is earlier grace. It was good, not so much in a lower sense, but in an earlier sense. The importance of stressing the idea of the earlier and the later needs to be insisted We know, of course, that in God's mind there are those that are reprobate and there are those that are elect. This fact being revealed to us, we know that some men will be finally rejected and some men will be finally accepted. And there's no dispute as to what the ultimate cause with respect to that difference is. Both parties to the debate are with Calvin, as over against Pythias heartily agreed that God's counsel is ultimately the determinative factor, but difference obtains with respect to the meaning of the historical. Now, without getting you into the precise contours of the people Van Til's interacting with and trying to lay bare the structure of Van Til's own thought, two claims are being made here. First, there is an earlier in which God shows an undifferentiated favor to all men in Adam. When God created Adam as the image of God, and Adam responded in covenant to God in an initially good ethical relation, that included all men elect and reprobate within its historical compass. All men elect and reprobate, were included in the initially very good ethical relation to God. And the key is that God related to Adam and all men in Adam 
in a relation of favor that consisted in a well-meant offer of beatitude to all men, not yet historically differentiated. Second, there's a later grace, a grace after the fall, in contrast to the earlier grace before the fall, where the process of differentiation between the elect and the reprobate begins its primal historical expression. God decreed before the foundation of the world an ultimate differentiation between the elect and the reprobate, as Van Til says. In the earlier pre-fall situation, however, God showed in history an undifferentiated favor to the elect and reprobate alike suspended on Adam's obedience. In the later, post-fall situation, God began to reveal in history a process of discrimination that would incrementally realize through history the differentiation that A, he had immutably decreed from all eternity, and that B, he would sovereignly realize through time and bring to consummation at the end of the age. The question Van Til poses then is this. How does the notion of the earlier relate to the notion of the later in covenant history? And how do each earlier and later relate to the total differentiation between the elect and the reprobate in the decree? That's the nexus of the issues that Van Til is addressing. The differentiation in eternity past is absolute. The differentiation in the consummation is absolute. So, putting the question in in as fine print as we're able, with the finest point put on it, how does the notion of the earlier universal favor of God displayed to all men as in Adam as a federal head bear on the later process of differentiation as it drives toward consummation in Christ. Page 72, Van Til begins to probe this issue and doing so in self-conscious and explicit dependence on Voss's theology of creation and covenant, as we've seen. He says this, the problem is more specifically to what extent we should allow our notion of the earlier to be controlled by our notion of the later. We think that the notion of an earlier must be stressed more than has been done heretofore. If we make the earlier our point of departure for the later, we begin with something that believers and unbelievers have in common. Earlier grace in Adam, universal favor shown to all people, elect and reprobate in Adam, is the historical alpha point of commonality. He goes on to say, that is to say, they have something in common because they do not yet exist. They exist in Adam as their common representative. They have seen the testimony of God in common in him. They have given a common good ethical reaction as covenant keepers in him. 
God's attitude to all is the same. He has a favorable attitude to all in Adam. He beheld all the works of his hands, and behold, they were very good. God was pleased with them. Before the fall, the earlier grace or favor of God does not differentiate between the elect and the reprobate. In Adam, as a federal head before the fall, there is an equally authentic offer of an advanced estate to the elect and reprobate alike, even though God has wholly differentiated them in the eternal decree, even though through time they will come to be wholly differentiated at the end of the age. Van Til's thesis is that in the pre-fall situation, which must be stressed more than has been done, there is a bona fide or authentic creational and covenant historical commonality among the elect and reprobate that cannot be eviscerated by the eternal decree and cannot be eviscerated by the future consummation. Earlier grace, Van Til's language, supplies a commonality in history that stands as authentic alongside of the eternal differentiation in the decree and the historical differentiation that will come in the fall and the consummate differentiation that will come at the end of the age. So the concept of earlier grace gives us concrete covenantal commonality. No abstractions allowed. That's Van Til's point. This is the concrete line of thinking. The true concrete line of thinking in history is the deeper Protestant conception of Adam as image-bearer in covenant and representative of all humanity whose obedience or disobedience, listen, will shape the whole future process of differentiation in space and in time. Any other attempt to find historical commonness, Van Til reasons, will fall into abstraction, will fall into creatureliness, humanity, or some other abstract concept. Van Til continues, now page 73. He says, at the same time, the original historical situation was an historically unfinished situation. It required further ethical action as its correlative. The continuance of the situation required on the part of man the representative affirmation of God as God. And this correlativity implied that the situation would in any case be changed. Whether Adam was to obey or disobey, the situation would be changed and thus God's attitude would be changed. It is here that Van Til speaks of the eschatology of the covenant relation that God entered into with Adam. That new relation, remember, where God does not change, 
God doesn't change in creation. God doesn't change in the fall. But he does reveal himself in new ways from the historical vantage point. But Van Til speaks of the unfinished character of that initial relation. As Voss taught, the very good situation in the estate of innocency was not the final estate for Adam. The estate of innocency was historically unfinished since Adam, if he remained upright in Eden under testing, could advance to the estate of glory through covenantal obedience. Thus, the situation would be changed if Adam obeyed unto glory, if Adam disobeyed unto curse. Adam would either advance his estate through perfect obedience or forfeit that estate through sin and disobedience. But either conditional option underscores that Adam's relation to God in Eden was, quote, an historically unfinished situation. Now, to relate this to Van Til's earlier and later categories, we can say this. If Adam obeys, here's the the hypothetical that Adam obeys. The later grace will be the consummation of his obedience and the advancement of the undifferentiated totality of humanity to Sabbath rest in the presence of God. If he obeys. If Adam disobeys, the later grace that follows upon his disobedience will be the beginning of a process of differentiation between the elect and the reprobate. Whether Adam obeyed or disobeyed, the situation would be changed, and thus, Van Til says, God's attitude would be changed. Now, as we've said so many times that this almost does not bear repeating. The change with respect to God's attitude is from the standpoint of a revelation in covenant history. New things to the creature are revealed by God that require no change, entail no change in God. God doesn't change when he creates. God doesn't change when Adam sins. God doesn't change when Jesus is incarnated. But from the standpoint of the creature, there is a new relation. That is Van Til's point. I'll talk a little bit more about it when we talk about fearless anthropomorphism here in a bit. But the point that Van Til is making is that the advancement of Adam's estate for obedience or the forfeiture of his estate for disobedience would involve further revelation in covenant history. The earlier, listen, the earlier demands a later. Whether it's a later of consummate beatitude for obedient Adam, or whether it is a later of a process of discrimination between the elect and the reprobate that leads to a cosmic climax. The earlier entails, demands, necessitates a later because of the eschatology of that covenant relation, the unfinished character of that initial covenantal relation. Van Tilden says on page 73, we need, quote, we need at this point to be 
fearlessly anthropomorphic. Our basic interpretive concept of the ontological trinity demands of us that we should be so. We have met the full bucket difficulty by asserting that history has meaning not in spite of, but because of the counsel of God that controls whatsoever comes to pass. From the point of view of a non-Christian logic, the Reformed faith can be bowled over by means of a single syllogism. God has determined whatsoever comes to pass. Man's moral acts are things that come to pass. Therefore, man's moral acts are determined and man is not responsible. So Pythias argued against Calvin. Calvin replied, in effect, that just because God has determined everything, secondary causes have genuine significance and meaning. Applying this to the case at hand, we would say that we are entitled and compelled to be uh, to use anthropomorphism not apologetically, but fearlessly. We need not fear to say that God's attitude has changed with respect to mankind as revealed in time. We know well enough that God in himself is changeless. But we hold that we are to affirm that our words have meaning for no other reason than we use them analogically. Now, just to remind Here's the argument. History has meaning. Second causes have authenticity. And relations in history change, moving toward a telos because of the immutable decree of the self-contained ontological trinity. The relation change. The creatures in relation change. But neither the being nor the decree of the triune God changes in any way in relation to the changing creatures. That is the full bucket problem. That is fearless anthropomorphism. You see, the entire point of the full bucket problem that Ventil refers to numbers of times in Common Grace in the Gospel revolves around the assertion that God cannot remain immutable and self-contained in his relation to creation without destroying the contingency of history and the authentic freedom of secondary causes. If the bucket's already full, the creature can't have freedom. If the bucket's already full, history can't have meaning. Van Til's response is that only in light of the full bucket problem, only in light of the self-contained and immutable trinity and his decree that controls whatsoever comes to pass, only in light of the full bucket problem does history have meaning and second causes authenticity. That is apparent contradiction, which we defined earlier as maintaining God's immutability in being and decree in relation to the changing creature. But you see, it would be a denial of the full bucket problem and a denial of anthropomorphism to embrace the really contradictory and say God changes in relation to creation. That If, if God's wrath is the emergence of a new attribute of God, and Van Til is making a crass neo-Hegelian, neo-Socinian point that God is changing in relation to creation, he would be denying everything he's argued for up to this point in common grace in the gospel and denying the rest of his corpus entirely. 
Dorner's Nubedetegu, Bart's Geschichte, Frame's Second Mode of Existence, Oliphant's Covenantal Properties, deny the full bucket problem, affirm the really contradictory, and reason univocally about God and man in relation to one another as both undergo development and change over time. But fearless anthropomorphism admits of no divine betetagun, no second mode of existence, no geschichte, no covenantal properties of God. Fearless anthropomorphism embraces the full bucket problem, affirms the apparently contradictory, and reasons analogically about the self-contained and all-determining God who sovereignly relates to man and gives him his freedom and gives his history meaning by his sovereign power. So Van Til continues, page 74. We need not hesitate to affirm then that in the beginning, God loved mankind in general. This was before mankind had sinned against God in Adam. A little later, God hated mankind in general. This was after mankind had sinned against God. Is there any doubt, this is continuing the quote, is there any doubt that the elect as well as the reprobate were under the wrath of God? Calvin says that the whole human race is, quote, individually bound by the guilt and desert of eternal death as derived from the person of Adam, end quote. Van Til continues, so the elect and the reprobate are under a common wrath. If there is meaning in this, and who denies it, there may and must with equal right be said to be an earlier attitude of common favor. Indeed, the reality of a common wrath depends upon the fact of an earlier common grace. But after the common comes the conditional. History is a process of differentiation. Now here are the points Van Til's making. First, the reprobate, although objects of wrath from all eternity, categorically and comprehensively differentiated from the elect by the eternal decree, are nonetheless objects of favor in their solidaric representation in Adam. So the relation between objects of wrath from all eternity and objects of favor in Adam before the fall locates the mystery of this earlier grace. It is both the case that there was an absolute and immutable personal differentiation between the elect and the reprobate in the decree and a universal common favor to the elect and reprobate in Adam. The former does not eviscerate the latter. The latter does not deny the former. They are equally true. Secondly, the elect, although objects of electing love from all eternity, unconditionally so, become objects of wrath in relation to Adam as federal head after the fall. The relation between objects of favor from all eternity and objects of wrath in time 
locates the mystery of later revelation. Later wrath against the elect after the fall does not destroy the decree of unconditional electing love. In history, after this common, then comes the conditional. What does it mean? It means this. Before the fall, after the common favor that God showed to Adam as a federal head, came the climactic test of his obedience. And that conditional climactic test of obedience would have decisive implications for all who would descend from Adam by ordinary generation. After the common, the common favor, comes the conditional, the probation test. That's Van Til's point. Adam's obedience or disobedience has the function, listen, of determining the future course of history by way of covenantal conditionality. After the common, after the universal favor is shown to him as federal head, comes the conditional covenantal requirement. This is Covenant Theology 101. This is Voss 101. This is Westminster Confession 7 101. After the fall, Van Til said, after the common wrath of God comes to Adam in judgment, God enters into a covenant of grace so that after the common wrath comes the conditional grace that signifies and applies Christ to come. This is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is the conditional and the particular that, quote-unquote, comes after the common fall of Adam and the common wrath against mankind. And this conditional grace in the covenant of grace becomes the, the historical mechanism of differentiating the elect and the reprobate in time. It becomes the concrete covenantal means of realizing this eternal decree that has differentiated in advance the elect and the reprobate. The conditional of the covenant of works follows the common good of God's creational favor to all in Adam. And the conditional of the covenant of grace follows the common wrath of God against all who have sinned in Adam. That is the beginning of Van Til's development of the concrete line of thinking, the positive line of concrete thinking, and the way we affirm and locate concretely what is truly common among believers and unbelievers, elect and reprobate, in time. And we'll continue that thinking in relation to gospel proclamation.